welcome to the PCTA podcast series. My name is Temba Shabalala. I am a researcher from the Center for Researching Education and Labor, which is a research center of the University of the Witwatersrand, also known as the Real Center. As part of the deliverables in terms of the PCTA Real partnership, Real undertook to design and produce a number of podcasts. And the intention of the PCTA podcast series is firstly to showcase the findings of key areas of research conducted on behalf of the PCTA, and secondly, to reflect and engage on some of the key issues facing the public service sector in terms of issues around skills, capabilities, competence, and capacity. Now, in view of this focus, the podcast series will look at areas such as unpacking the notion of a performing state, what skills can and can't do for a capable state, skills planning in the public service sector, and what is needed to facilitate the building of a capable state. Today's podcast is going to focus on the professionalization framework and what it means for skills in the public service sector. Now, in the context of building state capacity towards a capable, ethical, and developmental state, the national framework towards the implementation of professionalization of the public sector was approved by cabinet on the 19th of October, 2022. This framework seeks to transform the public service sector to contribute to a professional, ethical, capable, and developmental state by ensuring amongst others that public officials have the right qualifications, technical skills, and are properly inducted into the Batupili principles. Now, our question for today is, what does this then mean for the kind of skills to professionalize the public service sector? And is this really a skills issue? Now, today, we are joined by an esteemed guest, Professor Mbongiseni Butelezi, who's going to help us to unpack these issues. Professor Mutelezi is the Executive Director of the Public Affairs Institute, also known as PERI, and he has served as a member of the Ministerial Task Team on the professionalization of the public service. Prof, how are you this morning? I'm well, Temba. How are you? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, firstly, Prof, could you please provide us with a brief overview of the national framework towards the implementation of professionalization of the public sector, its objectives, and its key elements or tenets? So I think the overview really is that maybe let me start with talking a bit about the objectives. I think we all understand ourselves to be in a country that is said to be in a polycrisis. And part of that polycrisis has to do with the incapability of the state to deliver on the promise of the Constitution, the promise of the 1994 transition to democracy. And the aim of the framework is really to try and move us to a place where we have a state that is more capable, that is better at doing what the state is supposed to do, to deliver services to people who live in the country. And in order to do that, the primary thing that we thought needs to be dealt with is the political and administrative interface. I think, actually, that we're in the mess we're in, in part, in large part, because of political interference, because of the extent to which 
politicization has taken hold in the public sector more broadly. And this was also made abundantly clear by the findings of the Zondo Commission. State capture, uh, at the heart of it really, is the capture of institutions of the state and their use for purposes other than what they are actually meant for, which is to deliver goods, services for the benefit of people who live in this country. And so that's what primarily this framework is trying to deal with, to move us towards developing the right capabilities to have the kind of state that we need for the society that we are at this point in South Africa and going forward. In part, it takes as a starting point some of the work that's been done previously, including, among others, a framework like the National Development Plan that uh, in that chapter 13 talks about a capable state. Mm. And so, yeah, that's what the framework ultimately tries to deal with. Of course, as you know, it has these different pillars that look at, if you will, the whole value chain of what happens when somebody gets a job in the public service from when they enter the public service. How do they get inducted? Right through how their career gets managed. And I mean, we wanted to think quite hard about what also does it look like if somebody exits the public service, exits either when they have to be managed out or if they get to the end and retire, uh, for example. And we try to think quite a lot about all the different levels and the different parts of the, the public sector more broadly. So we're thinking about a public service as it's currently defined in South African law, that's at provincial and national levels, but also thinking a little bit about local government, which is not covered um, as well as it could have been. I think in that particular document and further work needs to be done to think about local government. We take it to thinking about what SOEs, for example, need to be thinking about. So it's really yeah, trying to think about the whole gambit of what a career of somebody who works in the public sector should look like, how it should be managed, and what institutions actually also themselves need to be looking like. Thank you so much. What are the key departures from previous approaches to transform the public service sector as seen in the framework for professionalizing the public service? I don't think there are any major departures. I think we should also stress that what that framework and the task team that was working on it, as well as, I think, uh, people that we're working with in the National School of Government, we're trying to achieve is to think about things that need to be done in the immediate term, things that can be achieved in the medium term, and to also think long term. Because public service reform, of course, doesn't happen overnight. It's a long-run process. What we're also trying to think quite hard about is how to develop a document that is not going to immediately meet resistance. Something that can build on what is already in place, because we've got to start with the context we're in. What does the public service look like now? We had to start from what exists in terms of legislation. What are the frameworks that are in place? What are the policies? And there are also aspirational documents, the Batupili principles, etc., and build on what already exists. The National Development Plan being also another key document that we wanted to build on. Mm. And so in the final document that was released after being approved by Cabinet, you see that it covers quite a lot of what is already in place. And then this framework tries to build on from there. So, yeah, we're building on what already exists. 
the key recognition, I think, is that one, the moment we're in calls for an approach that it really does take seriously the context that we are working with, where politicization of the public service has gone to the levels, to the depths, perhaps, that we see. And we needed to think about really how to begin to roll that back in a way that is gradual, that takes along people who are already in the system. So that's not going to be a big shock to the system that is then going to stand a little chance of being successful. So I mean, at least from how I think and how we approach the work, that was one of the big recognitions that we needed to make and a big, big departure point. The other thing was also to recognize that there has been a lot of work. And we talked about this quite a lot. There's been work that's been done. And the classic South African problem that we hear talked about over and over again, we develop good legislation, we develop good policy, we develop good proposals uh, on so many things. But usually those things ultimately end up in a shelf somewhere, gathering dust. And in this instance, I think the key challenge, and it's not resolved yet. It's for organizations that need to take this work forward, like the National School of Government, the Department of Public Services Administration, the Public Service Commission, the Public Service CETA, and others. The document, uh, I think, gives us a really useful starting point. How do we not let it become another document that gathers dust on a shelf somewhere? And partly what that needs, in my view at this point, is it needs the right champions for the work that needs to be done. It needs champions at the political level, but it also needs champions, administrative champions, who people who are embedded, who have authority, who have influence inside institutions to champion this. It needs us to think also quite hard about how do we develop a network of these champions so that the championing of the proposals in that document is not only happening from a single place. It's happening from a variety of different places so that it, it can then build up and begin to build momentum towards the implementation of the things in that document. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because my next question was going to be, what are the fundamentals that you think need to be in place to ensure that we are able to build from the previous frameworks that we have for professionalizing the public service. And you mentioned that you're building on like the NDP, etc. And very interesting, you also mentioned that we need a particular set of champions that are going to, you know, push this work forward. Would you maybe like to expand on that point as part of my third question and then we'll move on? So I think just to add, one of the things that we've also seen in South Africa, in the moment we're in, and I'm saying this on the back of a recent gathering that I was involved in, uh, we had something called the Social Justice Assembly that took place on the 26th and 27th of January 2023. I left that gathering with a very strong sense that unless something fundamentally changes soon in this country, we're on the verge of, of something major happening. People are fed up with the status quo. This was a civil society gathering of organizations, about 250 organizations, social movements, individuals from around the country. And they expressed a lot of frustration. We hear this over and over again on talk shows, on radio, etc. And one of the things that I think gives us an opportunity to do in this moment is if you look at countries that have gone through major reforms, there are two main ways in which reforms are driven. 
on one hand, they're either driven from the top, and they're driven by a political leadership that says we need a major change in the economy, in the way in which the state functions, uh, etc., in the way society is configured. Take South Korea, for example. Right? It was a very leadership-driven change that got South Korea to become the kind of Asian tiger, as it's talked about that it is. Or the other way in which it works uh, primarily is from below, where you get to a point where people are fed up enough about the status quo that they rise up. Right? So in South Africa, I think what we see is many uprisings that have not really coalesced into anything major. That is not to say we might get to a place where something major happens because people are really fed up. And we've had signals of that, right? The July 2021 unrest, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, was a signal of one of those moments where if nothing changes fundamentally in our economy, for example, in how people are included, in how our economy becomes equitable, that's one of the signals of the kind of thing that might happen. And partly, I think... This rests on the public sector. It rests on the state giving direction to develop the kind of inclusive economy that we need in this country. And that rests on partly having a capable state, a capable bureaucracy, not just in home affairs, right? Cuts across right into the SOEs that were captured. I mean, we were living through blackouts, and that's one of the major sources of frustration in the country. And if we don't fix this, if we don't get this right soon, this frustration might boil over into something that might be uncontainable. And so I come back to the point that that rests on the public service. So those two ways, and, and in between, I, mean, I think this is a continuum in between, where you have a combination of top-down reforms being meeting people where they are, meeting the civil society-driven reform agenda, for example. That's also a possibility. And we've got an option I think, to tap into civil society to also form a constituency for reform that can, on one hand, put pressure on the leadership of the country from outside the state, but also can help and support people within the state, the kind of network I was talking about earlier, that the champions within the state, they can actually try and drive this. And I think if they can find ways of working with people in civil society, I think we can move the needle on this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Now... In what ways does the framework intersect with political partisanship? So what we're basically trying to understand is, can the professional exist beyond or above the political? Professionalization, in our instance, is absolutely necessary at this point because, as I've said before, politicization has gone too far. It has gone too far in part because, as I think some people have said, we did not anticipate what would happen when self-interested people take hold of the state. It has gone too far also in part because our design of the state was perhaps somewhat naive. I mean, there's a line in the document which I think is absolutely on point. The ways in which local government works, for example, it was just designed in a way that allows for politicization, the power that's given to municipal councils, allows for politicization of parts of local government that should 
just be left to professionals. Our research at PARI in municipalities, we've done studies of metros, of um, the small municipalities. We've worked in just about every municipality in the country over the years. And what we've found, for example, let me give the example of the HR function in municipalities. HR has been juniorized in a way that very junior people get appointed into positions. In many instances, they get appointed into positions where it's politicians who control who gets appointed. And they control who gets appointed so that once people have been appointed into HR positions, they are dictated to by political networks outside who they appoint into other functions in the municipality. So they will appoint people into finance. They'll appoint people into supply chain management on the dictates of people who don't even sit in council, actually, of people who sit in the headquarters of the political party regionally. Mm. And this is what has facilitated a lot of the corruption that we've seen. Mm. Now, there's a question, for example, that we were asking over and over again in the task team about how we can professionalize that HR function in municipalities so that it can get insulated from being dictated to by political players outside of the municipality or even in the municipality, in council, or who to appoint. And this is where the question also of how you work with uh, professional bodies that can, for example, in hiring processes, on a pro bono basis, um, if you're hiring somebody for engineering services, you've got the engineering council seconding somebody on a pro bono basis to sit on a hiring council so that we make sure that we get the right kind of skills. And we'll come to the skills question, of course, later. So the juniorization has been the de-skilling of certain functions where people without the right levels of skill are being appointed. They are being appointed into positions and they get threatened with dismissal if they do not bow to the dictates of the people who've had a hand in appointing them. And this is how then the instructions come in from all sorts of places to say pay the invoice of a particular company within two days they get paid. We hear those stories over and over again in the Gauteng Health Department, uh, for example. We've been hearing those stories about the hospitals in Gauteng. That's how this has happened and this is what we need to roll back through this professionalization that we're talking about. We need to get to a point where people who work in finance, in municipalities, for example, belong to professional bodies that can hold them accountable when things go wrong on their watch. So that people are holding them accountable and not just the people right up the chain to the municipal manager. There are other ways that are independent of the, the context in which they work that people can be held accountable. Let's look at how that happened, for example, in one of the prominent state capture cases. Think about a figure like the former CFO of ESCOM, who's been disbarred, right? And he's been disbarred because there were findings against him that were taken up by the professional body to which he belongs and the professional body has found against him. We need to have that be something that is generalized across the professions where people who work in the state lawyers who work in the state, who facilitated state capture, for example, many of them have not been held uh, to account. Mm. Internal audit, I mean, the internal audit function in a lot of municipalities is in a sorry state. And auditors that work for municipalities cannot be held accountable Mm. by professional bodies. Mm. 
And that's one of the things that we need to get to a place where we change in the country. That'll get us to a place where if we can get people to have the possibility of being held professionally accountable by professional bodies, the influence of politics and politicians can begin to be rolled back because people know that if I do something wrong answering the demands of political networks, I will lose my job, I'll lose my career. And again, if people are made examples of, this can begin to also, I think, in the minds of people who've been involved in these kinds of things, uh, begin to, to change the perception of how you can be held accountable and begin to make people behave in ethical ways on the basis of what is demanded by their profession from them. Mm. Hmm. Yep. No, it's very, very clear. So what would you say the framework towards professionalization says about skills? So the framework recognizes on one hand that what we have might not entirely be a skills problem, right? Okay. I think the, the political administrative interface is probably the bigger thing that we need to deal with mm. because we do have skilled people in the public sector. What we've done really badly is to manage them, right? So how careers are managed of people who go and work in a department, for example, there's a huge gap there and that needs improvement. So basic HR functions in the Department of Water and Sanitation, for example, is something that needs to be improved drastically. Mm. I mean, performance contracting, just one basic example, and how people are held accountable by their own managers is something that still has a long way to go. And I think the Department of Public Service and Administration, the Public Service Commission, know this full well. Readily admitted by people that we interview, we work with in those departments. There's work that needs to be done there. But there's also this issue of, in many instances, a bit of a skills mismatch, where because of how people are being managed, people are not in the right places. You might find that they're very skilled people but they're actually not been matched with the right kinds of positions in the public sector. So that, again, is something that needs to be dealt with. But then there's a third thing, which is where I think the way in which this professionalization framework is framed and articulated tries to get to, which is that we have also seen, perhaps in the past decade or so, a serious skills flight from certain parts of the state, right? So we hear over and over again, even the president, ever since he became president, lamenting the incapability of the state, lamenting skills deficit that exists in some parts of the state. The term that we use often in our work at PARI is that things are very uneven. There's a complete unevenness. And partly it's also because of this last thing that I'm talking about, which is we've seen a skills flight. The skills flight has been partly due to how people were treated especially in the phase of what was heightened state capture, right? I say heightened state capture because state capture has been ongoing for a long time in South Africa. So take, for example, national treasury, right? Take, for example, somebody, I'll make it, I'm not sure any of these people would want to be named in this way, but let me name them anyway. Um, Fuzile, the former director general of our national treasury. Where is he now? He works for Standard Bank. How many other people who were senior in National Treasury have left the public service and have gone to work in the private sector? Another National Treasury example, Kenneth Brown, who was the chief procurement officer 
his life was made so miserable because his office, I mean, or the chief office of the chief procurement officer, was picking up so much corruption that was being driven from SOEs, from departments, and intervening to block a lot of it. His life was under threat because of the work that he was doing to save the public money, to save taxpayers' money. Take any number of whistleblowers who have either, I mean, some of whom have been killed, others of whom are under suspension. Matangoye, for example, is the major case that's been in the news recently. They get suspended, they get put through the ringer, their careers get destroyed, their lives get destroyed. And rather than stay in a job uh, where that's how we are being treated, people have left. Very senior people, in fact, not just senior, very senior people, right through the ranks. People have left and sought an employment elsewhere. You find this in municipalities, we found this all over the country. People in so many municipalities, because of the dysfunction as a result of political interference, are always looking for a job, always looking to try and find a job in a municipality that's functioning a little better. And what is the end result of all of this? It's that that flight of skills leaves huge gaps and this kind of unevenness in the public service where things in some municipalities have practically collapsed. And many municipalities, I mean, the Auditor General says up to 60%, and we concur actually from our own findings, are either at the point of collapse or have collapsed beyond redemption. Mm. So this partly has to do with this question of skills, of professionalization, of the unevenness, of the management of people in the public sector. Mm. Mm. Now, Prof, within this conversation of transforming and professionalizing the public service, where would you then locate the issue of skills? I know you mentioned there's a sense of skills unevenness and there's also a sense of skills mismatch. But it seems that the narrative is that there's a sense of a skills deficit in the public service. So where would you then locate the issue of skills? Are skills really an issue or are they a red herring? The bigger problems lie elsewhere. I think in in my view, skills are a secondary issue in that it's the bigger issues of how we've designed institutions It's the bigger issues of how we've staffed those institutions historically, of how we've managed people in those institutions. That has brought us to a place where it looks to many people like people who work in the state are incompetent. You hear the narrative, as you say, over and over again. Just take the example of traffic officers. The narrative has become that traffic services across the country are just full of people who want to take bribes and have no skills and are not interested in doing their jobs. You hear those narratives about the police service, about home affairs, about municipalities. It's the place at which I, as a user of public services, encounter the state and how that functions that has made us begin to generate these narratives and think all public servants are useless and whatnot. So that's the one thing. And then we come to this other thing that we often talk about, which I think also slightly misses the point. We often talk about policy, and we focus on policy, policy, policy. And what we don't talk enough about is how do you build the right kind of institutions and put the right people in place in those institutions. And I think that's where we need to go back to, right? So that what we've got, and when we get to the skills, is we get to the question of skills Once we know for ourselves what is the role of the state we're trying to build, what should the institutions of that state look like in order to be able to deliver 
the kind of outcomes that we want to see. And then we can get to the question of, okay, once we, we know for ourselves what institutions we're trying to build, what kind of skills do we need in those institutions? I think for the most part, we've kind of gone about these things the wrong way. We've, we've focused too much on policy. We get the policies in place and we say we can't deliver because this uh, South African state it does not have the ability to deliver. That's become a big part of the narrative. And it has become part of the narrative because we've not done enough of the work of building the kinds of institutions we want to see, seeing how the different parts of the state fit together and how to make those more efficient before we then talk about what are the skills we need you know, in all those different parts to make things happen. And so the skills mismatch, I think, comes about because we don't really know what the institutions we're trying to build are. Mm. Mm. Uh, Prof, that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much for your insights and for the work that you've done for the public service. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.